Welcome to this edition of the 401k and Beyond podcast. This is the longer form edition where we have meaningful discussions with folks in and around the investment community. Here is your host, Brian Williams. My guest today is Jordan Grummet. Jordan is author of Taking Stock, a Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret free life. So that's available on Amazon as of August 2nd. Uh, So coming out here in uh, about five weeks or so, that also happens to be my wedding anniversary, Jordan. So there you go. I'm glad Um, it'll be memorable for you. Yes. Yes. So how are you doing today? I am good. Pre-orders have already started actually now. So it's up on Amazon. But yes, the true drop date is August 2nd. Okay. So what was the motivation behind writing this book? So I was in this interesting place where I was a practicing physician and I was burning out of medicine when I discovered personal finance and financial independence. I read a book by a guy named Jim Dolly, The White Coat Investor, and I realized he gave me the vocabulary to see that I had saved up enough money and I had invested and I owned real estate. I had really great financial modeling from my parents. I realized I had enough money. So I eventually stopped doing a lot of the medical things I was doing because I was burned out and tired. But one thing I kept doing was hospice. And hospice is taking care of the terminally ill. As I was doing this over the years, and on one side, I'm talking about personal finance. I started a personal finance podcast. I was blogging about financial independence. So I'm talking about money on one side, and then I'm helping people in the dying process on the other side. And I realized that the dying have a real unique perspective on money and life. And I saw kind of the two parts of my life coalesce. And I started thinking about it. And I said, well, you know, there are not many people out there who've written this story, the story about what the dying can teach us about how we look at our financial structure and how we build wealth in our lives, both monetarily and otherwise. And so how long have you been doing working in the hospice area? So I started hospice work in about 2010. Strangely enough, originally I was practicing general internal medicine. I had my own practice. I was seeing adults for all non-surgical problems. And I picked up hospice as almost like a side hustle. It was something I could do where I'd get paid a stipend every month and I could put in four hours a week, let's say, and get paid a certain amount. Um, And it was kind of like a side hustle to medicine. But eventually I found after doing it for a long time that it was the part of medicine that actually had most meaning for me. Yeah, and that's interesting because I'm sure when you mention that to a lot of folks, they say, boy, that must be awful depressing, right? Or it must be such a downer working with people at the end of, end of life. I get a feeling, though, that that's not your uh, analysis of that, right? Well, you have to remember, my father died when I was seven. So I had experienced death of a loved one at a very young age. And so naturally, I found myself dealing with that in my professional life quite a bit. Like when I started medical school in my first week as a medical student, I volunteered at the hospice there. So it was something that was near and dear to me. As I started practicing medicine, I realized it was something I was good at. It was something I understood as opposed to seeing end of life as this horrible thing that no one wants to talk about. What I started to see is that, look, my dad died suddenly when I was seven and there was no one who knew how to help me or to talk about it or or knew how to give me a perspective of how to deal with it. But now as an adult, I could walk into the room and say, your family member's dying or you're dying. 
and really have a productive conversation and help that person come to terms with the, what that is, what it means, not only manage their medical symptoms, right? Make sure they're not having pain or shortness of breath or all those kind of things, but talk to them psychologically about what their life has meant and what they want to accomplish in whatever time they have left. So I see it in a sense, uplifting and joyful as opposed to depressing uh, and sad, because I think there's so many possibilities how we can help people during that time period and how we can help their family members. And I see a, a lot of positivity there. Okay. Yeah, that's good. And in these conversations with, with these folks and their families, as they're nearing the end of life, is there certain trends or conversations that you have over and over again related to money outside of the obvious kind of stuff? Well, interestingly enough, let me talk to you about what we don't talk about. Almost no one tells me, I regret that I didn't work more nights and weekends. Right. Almost no one tells me I regret that my goal was a net worth of a million dollars and I only made it up to 750,000. Uh, people tend to regret not having the energy, courage, or time to do the things that were most important to them. And those things are only tangentially related to money. They're related to money because often money provides the fuel or the potential energy that allows them to go on that trip or pursue that hobby or see or hang out with that person. But above and beyond that, money usually doesn't have anything to do with it. It has more to do with their purpose and identity as people. Um, and so money can help us attain certain goals. It can help us open up our schedule so that we can start working on those things that are more deeply important for us, but it can't necessarily buy us happiness, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. And very rarely are the conversations going to be around, you know, they wish they had invested more in small cap growth or something like that. So it's more of the exactly the and I, big I don't picture want, sort of stuff. And I don't want to belittle how important that stuff is. Mm -hmm. Purpose and identity are important, but you do have to build a financial structure around them so that you can have enough money to live and have enough money to pursue what you want to do. So those other conversations are also very important. They just can't be the sole conversations. They have to be part of the picture, not the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I think about this as, as we're talking. One of the things that, that I say in working with, um, with, with people in this, in this area, not necessarily the end of life, but I say, you know, it'd be a lot easier to plan if we all came with expiration dates on us, right? Like a, like a carton of milk or something like that. But you're actually dealing with people interestingly enough, they kind of do have an ex expiration date on them. So they can, it almost in a way is a relief from a planning perspective because one big variable is, is eliminated in a weird sort of way, right? It, I think that's very true. And, and when people are given a terminal diagnosis, it actually relieves them of a weight that's been on their shoulders for long, so long. They can actually look at life as it is. Like they can let go of all those excuses, let go of what society expects them of them, let go of what their family or friends expect of them. And they can actually narrow things down to what's most important to me. I say, let's come to terms with the fact that we're all dying from the day we're born. We're all having an expiration date. And that expiration date is ticking every day. Dying is, in a sense, a process that happens throughout our life. If we come to terms with that, we then can say, okay, let's start looking sooner at those things that are important to us. And I think that's kind of what that realization allows us, as opposed to going for the lower hanging fruit, which is society's expectations or even things like a net worth goal. Like all that is maybe sometimes hard to attain, but at least easy to figure. Whereas trying to figure out what's my purpose, what's my identity, what do I want to really do with my life? That's uncomfortable. For sure. Yeah. And one of the things you do to help people 
along that path maybe a little bit earlier through the book is some time hacking techniques. So what are some of the ones you can share with our audience? So, you know, it's funny. Time is this strange concept, which most of us have a lot of trouble understanding. In the finance world, we try to commoditize it. We talk about buying or selling time or wasting time. The truth of the matter is, Time passes no matter what we do. We have these slots of activities, these time slots. And the best we can do is one of two things. We can either control more what we put into those time slots, or we can try to hack our perceptions a little bit of how those time slots feel. So, you know, I I always give people the example of sit in a room quietly and count to 100. Do that, take a break. And then I want you to go and get into the plank position and also count to 100. You will find that that time while you're planking feels like it's a lot longer than when you were just sitting quietly in the room, although the same amount of time has passed. So what are some time hacking techniques? Well, you know, there are a lot of things we can do to get the most out of our time to then create space to do other things. So for instance, for me, a good time hacking technique is to get up early, like I get up early in the morning when everyone else is asleep because this gives me the opportunity to get a bunch of things to done, done to be super efficient and not to be bothered by anyone else. Often by nine or 10 in, in the morning, I feel like I've done more than most people do in their days. So it just creates this feeling of time abundance. You know how we're always feeling like we're rushing to get things done? Well, if you start early, a lot of times you actually free up more of your day and you don't feel so rushed. There's some other things you can do too. Another is hiring out, right? A lot of times we spend our day doing things that someone else could do for us, especially if we happen to be in a job we like where we make enough money, why not spend some time at work doing something we moderately enjoy as opposed to being home and cleaning the toilet, uh, which we don't enjoy whatsoever. Uh, Another technique I use is work bursting. So especially if you're self-employed or if you're a creative, um, you can think about setting aside smaller bursts or amounts of time to do more concerted thought work, right? More energetic thought work. So a lot of times if I'm doing something creative like writing, I will do work bursting in the morning because no one's awake, there's no one to bother me. And from 5.45 to let's say 7.45, I'll do something intensely. Like I'll write or I'll work on memorizing a speech that I'm giving for public speaking or something that takes a lot more energy. And after doing that intense two hours, you actually tend to accomplish more And then you can be more leisurely about your day doing other things. So those are just a few easy kind of time hacking techniques, ways of getting the most out of your time to create space to do other things that have importance for you. Right. And when you say early in the the morning, what's early for you? What's your wake up time? Oh, so I get up about 445 most days. I think that's a alarm. Um, I have an alarm, but I'd say six days out of 10, I probably wake up on my own without it. Okay. And is that because you require a little bit less sleep or you just go to bed a little bit earlier? So me, unfortunately, and this is, I blame this on being a physician and going through residency where I would go huge stretches of time with not sleeping. It ruined my sleep habits. I, regardless of what time I go to sleep, I I tend to wake up about five in the morning, 4.45 or five. So I tend to go to bed about 10, 30, 11 and wake up at 4.45. Okay. Not ideal. I think most people would do better on more sleep, but I don't do well at napping during the day too. So I kind of try to go by my body's normal rhythms and that's how my normal rhythms tend to work. Okay. Do you find when you're on vacation or something, you sleep a little bit longer or does it stay the same? 
a touch longer, but it's not that amazingly different. Okay. Part of the problem is I stay up later when I'm on vacation. Right. So I'll sleep a little bit later, but it's not as drastic as you'd think. I just, my body wakes up early. Mm -hmm. And the idea of these, these, uh, these intense, um, these intense work periods that you that you dive into, you have to be very present and be in that um, in that moment without any sort of distractions. And that's why doing it so early is important. Did you have to train yourself to do that? Like you would train a physical type of activity to just to really, truly intensely focus on something in a in a speed burst like that? I think it does come with practice and you get better and better, just like meditation, which is the exact opposite, right? Meditation is where you clear your mind for periods of time. This is similar. Um, yes, it takes some practice, but it really also takes creating the right atmosphere for you to produce adequately. So for me, again, that's usually early in the morning. For other people, it's late at night. For me, it's some time where I won't be bothered because being a physician, still doing hospice work, I still get texted and paged all the time. So I try to set aside times where there is little things to get in my way as possible. Um, yeah. And then you, you know, you try to put your phone away or turn it off and really create the right environment. I have certain spaces around the house where I work really well. Like right now I'm in my basement where I record. I know that if I have work to do with my podcast or audio work to do, just sitting in the seat, putting the headphones on and getting next to my microphone actually creates the mind space that helps with this type of bursting activity. So it's creating the right environment around it too. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, get, getting back to some of the folks that you work with in the hospice, what, what sort of money related th things come up in, in conversation? Is it more about creating a legacy or is it more, I guess it depends on their, on their health situation, but is it more about doing things for other people or is it sort of maximizing the time they have left? Interestingly enough, it really varies from person to person. And some of it has to do with the stories that people tell themselves about their lives. For instance, I took care of an older woman who lived through the depression. And so she basically always worried about money. And, you know, she was married and had several jobs and she accumulated enough money. But this remembering being hungry and not eating was always present in her mind. She used to hide money around the house in case she ever ran out. I remember as we started taking care of her at the end of life, she actually had a lot of anxiety about her grandkids. She had kind of taken that stress about her own well-being and her own monetary issues, the trauma from living through the depression and passed it on to her grandchildren. And so she had a lot of anxiety towards the end of life about her grandchildren being okay. Like, would they be able to go on vacations? Would they have money for college? All those kind of things. And interestingly enough, one of the ways this came out during a life review where we sat with her and started asking her about what was on her mind, what she worried about, what she didn't worry about. And after this life review, when we realized that this was really something she struggled with, her children were able to share their financial information with her so that they could see, for instance, the kids had, the grandkids had 529 plans and things like that. So, you know, it's really interesting how these money issues play into the dying process just as they played into people's lives. And sometimes we have that unique window where we can start addressing them in a way that, that they weren't addressed before. How do you find that that's different from younger folks who are at the, at the end of life, uh, somebody maybe in their 
thirties or forties? How do how do they approach it a little bit differently? And do you feel like it's more of a generational thing or an age thing? If that makes sense. I mean, it varies from person to person. I think it's easier for older people at least to come to some peace about getting towards the end of life, seeing what they've accomplished, what they haven't accomplished, looking at the generations ahead of them and thinking about their legacy. It's a lot harder for young people because it's so unexpected and they don't have some of that calm of saying, okay, I've been on this earth eight eight decades. I've been able to accomplish the things that I wanted to do. So for them, it's a little bit harder, I think. I think they worry less about their monetary legacy because, again, they haven't had kind of all those decades and they might not have as many generations after them to worry about. But certainly if they're young parents, they worry about their kids and they worry about the financial well-being of their kids, et cetera. Right. Okay. Um, as far as dealing with you know the specific money issues, how do you handle um, people that have large sums of money and they thought they were going to live quite a bit longer. And as, as it turns out, they're not. Do you find that they're that they're relieved by the fact that they ended up with this nest egg or that they're stressed about how it's going to be spent after they're gone? It, it really depends on their family relationships, right? So if there is contentious family relationships about money during life, then when they get to the end of life, yes, they're going to be worried about who gets the money, how are they going to spend it, which child or grandchild is going to get the money, but then their spouse is going to waste it or they're going to get divorced and it's going to go to a spouse. So the people who've had wealth for a long time set up the legal instruments to deal with that. They have trusts and Hopefully, if they've done it right, they've talked to family members and kind of made it clear. And through their wills and the trust, they can actually set set things into how they want to. Above and beyond that, usually when people are dying, they worry about money if they don't have enough for basic needs, right? If they're worried about where the food is going to come and how are they going to pay for the caregivers, et cetera. That's like the biggest worry if they don't have enough. If they have enough money, it really falls into the back of their mind because they're much worried about those other things, which is what have I done or not done and what can I accomplish in what little time I have left. Mm -hmm. Do you find that people want to make changes into their plans once they find out that they're terminally, terminally, terminally ill? Do you find that they want to yeah. adjust their will or take a further closer I mean, there's look at this. some of that as a physician. I don't experience that as much because they'll most likely go to their lawyers mm -hmm. and, and do those things. But I mean, certainly if we're going to see this, especially with people with have, they have money, sometimes people reconcile towards the end of life with people they cared for. So they may change their will or they may change the inheritance based on the fact that they had a contentious relationship. And as the end of life got closer, they were actually to able to open up and talk to these people and reconcile some of their differences. So you may see some of that, but they wouldn't come to me with that. They would come to the, they would go to the lawyer. Right. In terms of pulling all your, your notes together, what did you learn from writing your own book? Ooh, a lot of things there. Um, one is that it's hard, right? Writing a book is not easy. It takes years. It takes failing and getting back up and writing again. Um, but what's really cool about the process is someone told me this, and I don't know if I totally believe them, but I certainly do by the end. They said, writing is going to be hard. If you get an agent, if you have a publisher, if you have a lot of editors, they're going to point things wrong out that are wrong with your book. You might have to rewrite it a few times. But if you actually listen to them, especially the experts, and you take it all in 
and then you rewrite and make it better, the end product will definitely be better than what you began with. And I found that to be true. You know, a lot of us who are not authors as a profession, we come to writing as novices. And I think this is important in a lot of parts of life, especially if you become a business person and that wasn't necessarily what you trained in. Uh, if you become an author and that wasn't what you trained in, using the experts around you and doing so with humility in a sense, letting them help you improve, even if it's hard to hear, right? It's, it's hard for someone to look at your first draft and say, yeah, you're going to have to go back to the drawing board and we're going to need to start again on that. That's not easy. Um, but if you listen to the experts, they can help you. And so it becomes this great collaborative process. The one thing about writing this book is, is the product I have today is so different than what I started with, not the core messages, but the way in which the stories are told and organized uh, is so much better that it's just been really great to see it grow and change. Mm -hmm. and, and you write a little bit in the book about um, the idea of, of electronics and screen time. How do you think that plays into um, people's perception of, of their life and comparing it to others and that sort of process? Yeah, I mean, we live an Instagram, Facebook life, right? Where everyone is flashing all the newest things they buy and the vacations they go on. I mean, we love to spend our money buying the newest baubles or experiences and then putting them out there for the world to see. Again, I think a lot of these are kind of false goals. Like, it's just like making money your end goal. It feels great in the beginning, but then when you get there, you realize that the money itself isn't the goal. It's, it's what you can do with that. Money is the tool. I think we spend a lot of time trying to convince everyone else that we found great meaning and purpose in life by showing them our things or our vacations. But then we forget to do the hard work of actually deciding what is important. And often when we do that, we find that we're spending money on things that maybe are not as important to us as we thought we as we thought they were. And based on your conversation, I would imagine that people were far more proud of the experiences and things they they did with their family and friends rather than the physical items they had purchased, cars, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, there's a place for physical things, right? There's some people who love beautiful things, artwork or cars. I mean, there's a joy in driving a car. And some people, every time they get in that car, they really feel the joy of having it. But yeah, I think ultimately, experiences probably for, fulfill a better sense of purpose and meaning for people than things do. Um, and so they tend to remember, especially on their deathbed, those really meaningful experiences they had. And who's really your intended audience for this book? You're trying to sell books, so probably everybody, right. but who specifically, if you could pick, an, pick a group, an age group, a certain demographic, if you could give them all this book, who would that be? You know, we really have a lot of people in, I'd say the 20 to 50 range right now who are burned out at work. They're working really hard. They're making money. Often they don't know what to do with that money. They don't know what their overall goal is. And it's making them depressed and anxious. Um, they're stuck on this idea that money will solve all our problems. And they don't realize that money solves money problems, like how to heat the house and how to buy groceries. But it doesn't really tell you much about who you are or what you need to feel fulfilled in this world. And so there's a lot of people in that great middle right now, I think, who are searching for purpose and meaning, and they just don't know how. So they're on that treadmill of working too much, worshiping money and things too much, and, uh, and it's making them miserable. And so that's that kind of group that I think this could really help them 
take stock of their life or or put their financial goals in its appropriate place so they can reach some of their other goals. Is there something that you wish they taught in high school or even through your experience in, in medical school and how to help doctors better handle money? Is there is there something you wish that could be more forefront than just accumulate as much as possible? Oh, no question about it. I mean, the basic rules, and it's not just for doctors, it's for everyone. I mean, we should all be learning how to widen the gap between the money we bring in and the money we spend, because that gap is what's going to eventually lead to our wealth. We should all learn basic investing. We should all learn how to protect ourselves, right? What are the appropriate insurances and which ones we need to make sure that no matter what, we're okay. I mean, all of these things I think are important. And generally, doctors nor anyone else, a lot of us don't get taught any of the kind of personal finance basics. Right, right. And sometimes doctors are some of the some of the worst that I've run into. They're just so focused on making as much as possible that they that uh, and some of the debt that they come out of school with and stuff makes it tougher them to get going. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And and debt, that's the other thing is is debt is a problem, right? Debt is negative compounding. We always talk about investing in the stock market so we can have positive compounding, but debt compounds negatively. And so one of the first things we need to do, especially if you have those college or medical school loans or what have you, is, is get a plan to pay off that debt. Right. Absolutely. All right. So your book, Taking Stock, is coming out on August 2nd. So the full title is A Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life. Um, and you also have a podcast, too. I figured we might as well touch on that because you've done very well with that and, and won some awards on that. And how frequently do you put your podcast out? So it is the Earn and Invest podcast. We have Monday and Thursday episodes every week. Mondays tend to be panels, which is two or more people, while Thursdays are individual interviews. The idea is most people have great sources to learn personal finance 101. There's some great ways to learn that, great podcast blogs, et cetera. But my goal is to focus on personal finance 201. Okay, now you know the basics. What next? What does it all mean? How do we take this financial power we're now gaining and use it to create a good life? And that's really great. I mean, I think being in this industry, that's the thing that's been exciting about over the last few years is just so many different ways to, you know, do one to many to go to where the people are, whether it's YouTube channels, whether it's longer form podcasts, shorter form kind of quick hits, one or two minutes, books, books on tape. I mean, there's no... There's no reason not to get the information. It's certainly out there. And it, um, in a lot of instances, it's free or ad-supported. And um, so it's, a, it's an exciting time for financial literacy, I think, for people to catch up, even if it's not offered in schools. I agree. And our goal is to make it as digestible as possible. All right. All right. Thanks, Jordan. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast.